This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, I'm Linus Wilson, and greetings from the Kingdom of Tonga. So, me and my volunteer crew member arrived in Tonga a few days back. As patrons of the podcast have heard in the bonus episodes already released for episode 48 and 49, started out in Tahiti this year, and last they heard, we were in Aitutaki in the Cook Islands, which is a marvelous place, but very shallow, and luckily we were the only monohull there. All the rest of the sailboats that got in were catamarans, but our four-foot draft came in handy, and we were tied to two palm trees before departing. We have a great guest on this episode, and before I get into the details of the offshore passage from Aitutaki to Tonga Tapu Tonga and its capital, Nukalofa, I'm sure you're very excited about hearing from our guest, Barry Perrins, of the Adventures of an Old Sea Dog YouTube channel and his solo sailing adventures across the Atlantic, Caribbean, and through the Panama Canal. I believe that he uh, was headed to Mexico the last time I read, and you know I'm out of it because I've uh, been at sea for so long. While I'm here at anchor with our 45-pound Mantis anchor holding us next to Big Mama's restaurant here in uh, Nukalofa, Tonga. It's a good time to hear a word from our sponsor, Mantis Anchors. I talked to Greg Cutson of Mantis Anchors about why weight in the tip of the Mantis Anchor is so important. The main issue I perceived with Anchors was not really ultimate holding power. The reason they failed was because they never really properly set first place. So very rarely, 25 knots, you're overpowering a well-set anchor. We wanted to create something that guarantees you a universal set. As a cruiser, when you go around, you find unique locations that are really hard to get an anchor to bite. And we solve that problem. Go to mantisanchors.com to order yours for a better night's sleep. Before we hear from Barry Perrins of Adventures of an Old Sea Dog YouTube channel, you'll find out why I am so glad that we have a Mantis Anchor. Okay, so Aichitaki, super shallow, 5.5 feet at high tide. So if you draw much more than 5 feet, there's no way you're going to get in there. The the lagoon around uh, Aitutaki is mostly awash. For much of the day, you could almost walk on it, and there are rocks strewn through it. So while it is, uh, it kind of has the, the lagoon, and it is also a hilly place, uh, its lagoon is very, very, very shallow, and the channel is totally mismarked on the charts. You must do it during daytime. Must be eyeball navigation. It's a thousand feet off in the charts that I use, the the Garmin. Uh, and it uh, it is it is does have buoys in it and they are color coded. There are a few lighted ones, but certainly not enough uh, to safely navigate that channel, uh, except in good light. And uh, on the way in, we did not have a problem, but on the way out, which we went out uh, with the rising tide, maybe about an hour before high tide, uh, I think high tide was about noon, and we were, we were going out at 11. We briefly hit a rock uh, on the way out of the harbor. So there's a little harbor that was where we were tied up to the two palm trees and we set our mantis so it was a medmore off of two palm trees. We had two lines going from the back 
to the palm trees that held us in place because the harbor is just so small. It's just a, such a small anchorage. Uh, and that's how the guys will tell you how to do that. That was how the other boat that was in that harbor was, they were tied to the shore uh, with a single ma uh, anchor out. Uh, although there, there was a boat that came in after me, uh, a, a catamaran uh, that uh, was seemed to be on a very short uh, hook, maybe about a 30 foot of, of scope on their chain, and uh, they were just spinning. So one of the, my worries was that I, I had meant to go to one shore, and I ended up going to another shore uh, because of, when I came in, and so I ended up putting out like 100 feet of chain uh, in that harbor, which was not crowded uh, when I was there because it was kind of off season. We're still, we are really ahead of the puddle jumpers, the people coming from Canada and the United States or from Europe that are crossing the Pacific. Uh, we're kind of a month or two ahead of the, all those people. And so the bulk of people doing that are, are not sailing yet. Uh, right now, this season, we've actually been sailing with a lot of Kiwis, Kiwis who have been coming up from uh, New Zealand and uh, seeing the tropics. So this is the, so we're not really uh, in the westbound traffic of cruisers. We've been in, in the northbound traffic of cruisers, although our general direction has just been due west. Before we hit that rock on the just really next to the pier, and it's it's kind of like a stone pier coming out of Aitutaki, I saw the depths going down to 3.7. So 3.2 on my depth sounder is actually four feet. Uh, that means we'll hit run aground. And so when I saw it at 3.7, I was already going like one and a half or two knots. Uh, I was just slow, slow forward, and I I put it into neutral, and so we kind of drifted on that, but we drift, we kind of just bounced off, uh, really gentle. And as far as I know, I haven't seen any damage from that. If you want to know how I got it started sailing, get my book Slow Boat to the Bahamas, which is a funny look at how. I got the sailing bug and went on my first big trip. That's available in ebook and paperback on Amazon. On the passage from Aitutaki to Nukalofa Tonga, which I just completed, the first day had fairly light winds and we motored sailed, but the next two or three had good, you know, 10 to 20 knot winds and we were able to turn off the motor for two or three days and make good time. You know, part of that was that the wind was kind of more beam reaching than dead down wind versus the first day. And, you know, just beam reaching, I think, is more efficient because you get the lift and the push from the wind, whereas dead down wind, you're just getting the push and, and none of the lift. In less than four days, uh, we were past Beverage Reef. Uh, Beverage Reef was really right on the path. I actually had to put a waypoint 10 miles south so we didn't get too close to it. We almost would have ran into it if we did the uh, rum line from Aitutaki to Nukalofa. So this passage, Aitutaki from Nukalofa, was the longest offshore passage save the Marquesas Passage that I've done in the, the slow boat. So it's about 880 miles. About midway through is Beverage Reef. Like with the passage from Bora Bora to Aitutaki, Layla, my crew member, uh, who did a very good job and stood all her watches, and she did get seasick, and she was really seasick for the first three days. Uh, and I, I would say the waves were a little, you know, we had the wind chop, and I think that the thing that I learned from the passage was to distinguish between kind of the big ocean swells and the wind chop, and the wind chop is a little steeper, so maybe we had 
you know, three to or three to six feet waves from the wind chop, and maybe we had more from the ocean swells, but the ocean swells are not so uh, steep, and they're less likely to bother you. Anyways, I was able to eat the whole passage, although I did use uh, scopolamine, and Layla did, but she, she really could not eat for the first three days uh, until we kind of were motor sailing on the fourth day. We did not stop at Beverage Reef because I thought we were pretty rested, and uh, we would have had to slow way down because we passed it at night. And, of course, you can't go in there at night. You need to eyeball it. Um, there's actually no, like, real charts. They're kind of charts that cruisers um, circulate. Uh, I think it involves something like running the 20-degree the latitude line. But you, you want to do that uh, in the daytime, preferably, I guess, in the, the afternoon because you're coming for, you, you need to head east into the wind uh, and if, if you're going in the morning then you have the sun in your face you can't really see the water very well so it was just not advantageous to stop and it didn't seem like we needed to so we kept on going but around Thursday there was scheduled to be a front that was coming through and I think we went by beverage around Tuesday, uh, so we would have had to wait around in beverage for that front if we wanted to sit it out, and I just went through it, and I guess it was the right decision, uh, but the front kind of did a number on us. I guess in retrospect, maybe I would have sat it out in beverage knowing what I know now, but at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. For one thing, uh, beverage is underwater much of the day so it 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 gets kind of choppy there at high tide um you're it's it's a reef that has no 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 land that is always above water it it is some of it is above water at low tide so i thought it would be an uncomfortable anchorage and unfortunately i'm not a big diver. I thought it would be more of a diving spot than a snorkeling spot, and it just kind of, the whole thought of, of you know, dinging out uh, just kind of made me a little nervous in the middle of the ocean there. you just like, it's a, it's a, a reef just in the middle of the ocean, no land. Uh, you know, it's kind of a interesting experience. We we were in kind of a similar place in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, me and Jana, for one of our ASA training classes, ASA 106, uh, which is the Advanced Coastal Cruising class. Uh, so I didn't feel like that was something I had to do. And I thought it was going to be uncomfortable and kind of boring uh, to be there from my perspective. But I know a lot of other people would have loved it. Uh, if you would like to have a really small diving gear on board your boat, Mantis has a solution for you. The mini scuba, that's an awesome setup. It's really set up well for boaters. You have a nice lightweight package. The whole thing is less than 15 pounds, but it still gives you a good, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so underwater. So if you need to do any of your maintenance items on your boat, you just want to do like some spear fishing or some lobster fishing. So at 30 feet, you can get about 15, 20 minutes. But if you're only at like, say, 10 feet, so maybe you're just working on the prop or the hull, you can probably get close to 30 minutes. It's a nice setup. It comes with, you have the tank, you have the regulators, it has a, um, a primary and a, and a secondary. It comes with a simple harness. It's a small two-liter tank, so you don't have a lot of weight to, to try to offload. And we throw everything into a nice backpack, so everything fits in the backpack, so it's easy and portable. You can get the Mantis scuba gear and all their other products at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. So that front had the wind moving around. So the trades are typically uh, east-southeast, and sometimes they're southeast. 
Sometimes they're east, but they, you know, went from southeast to east to northeast to north. And when they got around to south, staggered our boat, even motoring at higher RPMs. Coupling it came off, but it wasn't true. The, it, the, the prop was churning up water. Uh, the propeller shaft was turned off the engine just because it just I was tired of the pounding and kind of had reduced sail because I didn't really want to go that far south. You know, the engine started losing power like there was kind of a fuel system problem and and we had uh, the the loss of rpms a few more times and we started dying and if i think back on uh the the longest three passages that i've done in contango uh even marquesas ended with fuel bleeding problems that passage did uh so we did you we were really I like bled the engine and then turned on the motor just as we got into the harbor, even though my preference would have been to run the engine much more than I did. I, you know, uh, we, we were having either, it was either dirty fuel or air in the line. I think it was more air in the line on the Marquesas passage. And the third longest passage that we did uh, to Ecuador is about I think 700 miles or something. We had dirty fuel problems, and uh, you know I needed to change and bleed the the filter element in Ecuador. But we really were slowed down in Ecuador, and we were sailing slowly because it wasn't enough wind upwind, and the our entrance was delayed, if not hours, uh, but possibly even a day because of the engine dying problem. And that was similar to, to this passage too, uh, but I think it was error, and I think it was caused by the rough seas. And, I, you know, I was actually pretty conscientious with keeping the, the engine full, um, and, you know, maybe we had six gallons, like, of air in the tank, and... 19 gallons of fuel, but it wasn't like a, it was all air, uh, but it was just, I think, the roughness of the seas, and I, I, I think that just kind of goes to, uh, I've not really been in really bad conditions from an ocean perspective, uh, you know, and the, it was true of this passage that it was like one to three meter seas were what we were seeing. Now, some of them were fairly choppy, uh, but that's not extreme conditions, uh, but it seems that we do get either air or dirt in the fuel on these ocean passages. And I, they, uh, that's something to keep in mind, I think, if you're thinking of sailing offshore, that you may not have uh, access to the engine as much as you'd like uh, because of that. But maybe that's just my engine, but I think it's, it's common to other boats, too. So, had we had access to the engine, we could have done the passage in seven days. But we weren't able to get there fast enough to enter Tongatapu before dark. And so, we were probably about 60 miles out of Tongatapu. The engine was... I tried bleeding it. It was still dying. I kept on going up. You start with the bleeding at the secondary filter, and then there's like a, an injector bleed screw, and then you bleed at the injectors. And I never bled at the injectors before, never had to, and I did it wrong. That I tried to bleed at the outtake when I needed to bleed in the intake. And when I put back on one of those outtake bleed screws, I broke it because I used a socket wrench, which is dumb. I should have just used a spanner wrench and carefully at that, and I broke that. And then after that, basically lost an injector, and the odds of getting that working were, went way down. I did not have that screw. I thought I did. When I broke it, I was like, 
I have a total spare injector. That was one of the spares that I bought. But Yanmar does not give you the screw on top of the injector. So when you buy the injector as a spare, you don't get the, the screw on top. And so you think you have the, the, the spare, but you don't because there are so many little pieces that are not included in the total injector, which is like a $150 spare to have. So that, that was just really disappointing. And this screw is a bleed screw. It, it allows the, the unused fuel to be discharged. And it took me a while to figure out what its use was, but it needs to have that hole in it. So you can't just put another screw in its place and the injector working. So I tried to disable that injector uh, and run on just two injectors, but that didn't work. I was not able to really bleed it effectively, and I, you know, was just running out of time. So what we did was we sailed uh, two knots overnight so that we could get daylight. You know, uh, we I considered heaving two, and I thought it was better to go to this, down to the second reef. We could not go down to the third reef because the third reef blocked went out while we hit the front. So the weakness of our third reef block and why it's good to have the tri-sail, which is about the same size as the third reef, but you take down the whole main and you put up the tri-sail. I didn't put up the tri-sail, but the third reef block popped out during the front and it is only as strong as that screw that put it in uh, and which was not super strong. We were also having autopilot issues. I had a CPT autopilot as a backup, and I had the, the Ray Marine. The Ray Marine problem was they have like a metal protrusion that you, is supposed to help the wheel pilot move, and that metal protrusion kept on popping out of the, uh, the binnacle where it was screwed in. I re screwed it in at Aichitake. Uh I used machine screws instead of the wood screws that were given with the package and, and had gone bad on the previous passage. Uh, but I didn't have any, I had no access to, to put the, the nuts on the back or washers on the back or anything like that that would hold it. And I think that protrusion is just designed wrong for Ray Marine, that instead of having holes for a screw, it has like ovals, and those ovals encourage that protrusion to go back and forth until it jiggles out the screws. I think if it had holes, it would work a lot better, but it has ovals for some reason. I don't know why they did that, but I think that's a total design flaw. So, I, you know, I was kind of able to lash that together and kind of keep those pushed in, and so we, the the Raymarine, we did use it all the way, and it was somewhat working. I also tried the CPT once we started having problems with the Raymarine because it, it, its protrusion completely fell out, and then I re-put it in and I lashed it in and used it later. But when it completely filled out, uh, fell out prior to the bleeding problems, so about 100, 200 miles out, uh, I put in the CPT, but the CPT autopilot, which is a wheel pilot like the Raymarine uh, uh, ST4000 Mark II, which we use, uh, it, it's a little bit different. It has belts, but the CPT is, just doesn't seem like it's like as easy to use as the Raymarine. It really needs to be calibrated, and there's really kind of like four dimensions with which you calibrate it. And I just couldn't get it to work any better than just putting the wheel in the middle. I mean, we have a full keel, and, and although Layla kind of struggled with this, I found it fairly easy to put the wheel uh, in a position pretty close to the middle, maybe with a little bit of offset for what kind of helm we had, whether it was a Lee helm or weather helm, and leave it like that for five minutes and it would do pretty well keeping the course while I would maybe do something else like leading uh, the engine. Um, but Layla struggled with that. But I, I could not get the CPT to be better than our full keel 
at keeping us on course. So one of the things I think it, I've found with our boat is that it, that full keel keeps us on course. Okay, so I sailed in no motor. I took the east entrance because that allowed me the most maneuverability. There was a north entrance. I was worried that I would have to tack there and it would be a narrow channel. The east entrance seemed relatively wide and all I needed to do was jibes. Jibes are a lot easier and you get better wind angles with the jiving angles versus uh, tacking, on, definitely on my boat. So we could make maybe 30 degrees tacking, which is pretty bad. You know, I think people think you can make 90 degrees each tack, but not on my boat. And the other thing is you need to be going at least three and a half knots to just get the thing to tack at all in flat seas. So uh, it's not, it, it was a very good decision of my to go for the downwind part through the reefs versus the upwind, the potentially upwind passage through the reefs. And we got through the, the reef section, which had like warnings on the chart about big waves and eddies, but I did not see any evidence of those. But maybe that's only when you have uh, wind against current. And today, I think they, I chose the time so that I had an incoming current, so there was not a wind against current situation when I came in. But by definition, going into an anchorage, you want to anchor on the lee side of an island. And that probably means if you're going to do it under sail, that you're going to tack into the anchorage. And that's what I had to do, did about five tacks. The first time I tried uh, luffing into the wind, I did it too early. And then the second time I did it, I did it uh, at a good time. And thankfully, with a lot of pre-talking about the communications, uh, Layla was able to drop the anchor. I told her to drop in like 33 feet, and with her delay, it was about 20 feet. It shelves very quickly here, um, so you go from 60 feet in the, the bay here, north of Nukalofa, around the reefs, uh, to 40, 30, 20, 10, nothing, relatively quickly, even at the good anchoring spots such as uh, Big Mama's. And I think we anchored about 20 feet of depth, and we put out about 130 feet of chain and snubber. And we used our Mantis chain grabber as, as well as our Mantis anchor to do that. And thankfully, it holds very well because currently do not have access to an engine. And it is coming with the replacement bolt on Monday. She was scheduled to come on Monday. And we got the replacement bolt. And when I get that, hopefully I'll be able to leave the engine and get it started. And we will have access to the engine so we could move from this anchorage. Although our plan is to stay in Tongatapu for the duration of her stay. That was our plan uh, from the outset. And that seems very likely that we will stay in Tongatapu even if we do have a excellent working engine. If you want to hear the story of the first man to sail around the world in a small yacht by the Panama Canal and around the Cape of Good Hope, get the ebook version of Harry Pigeon's classic, The Cruise of the Islander Around the World Single-Handed, and that's available in ebook format at Amazon. So Jana and Sophie have been joining the boat uh, in, in the first couple weeks of July since I departed New Orleans, and they're doing that this year in Tongatapu. Last year they were in Tahiti, and the year before that they were in Panama. And in a future episode or bonus episode, you'll find out how it goes with Jana and Sophie coming and the rest of the Tonga cruise. Now it's time to hear from our guest, Barry Perrins, and his about his solo sailing adventure from England to the Caribbean and beyond. You're in Curacao. 
How long have you been in Curacao? I've been here now about two months, and uh, I'll probably stay another month before I move on. So it must be pretty nice. Yeah, it's good. The facilities here are a bit lacking. I'm in a place called Spanish Waters, which is a huge natural lagoon uh, that a lot of cruisers come to because it's uh, out of the hurricane season, out of the hurricane belt, sorry. Right, so you're not in the box. You're outside the... I don't know if you've heard that concept from the insurance agents. No, but I can believe after the, the big storms and the hurricanes and stuff, uh, the other day that uh, the, the insurance companies will be rethinking uh, what the what and what they won't insure here. But I only have third party anyway. Yeah, they, I think they. I forget what the the latitudes and longitudes of the box are, but they. Uh, I don't know. I I know Grenada is typically not in the box, but of course the the. Hardest hit areas, St. Martin, BBIs, Barbuda, Antigua, that were all hit by Hurricane Irma, uh, certainly are in the the hurricane box, the hurricane zone, as are we here in uh, Louisiana. I know. Uh, a friend of mine was hit by Sandy four or five years ago, was it? And he's up in New Jersey, and they still haven't found his car yet. Well, there could be other reasons for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe Jersey, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Tell me, uh, what's the name of your boat? Okay, the boat's uh, called White Shadow, and uh, she's uh, a hand-built Vanderstadt uh, 36, uh, built by an English guy, uh, and it's got a, an extra sort of coach roof um, uh, on, the, on the top sides, which makes it kind of unique, or a bit of a one-off. Yeah, I've never heard of that model of sailboat. Like yeah, they're, they're Vanderstadt. They're, uh, it's a famous Dutch design. Um, and they're not actually manufacturers. It's the design of boat. Uh, but to get the official Vanderstadt stamp or uh, authentication, if you like, the, the boat is built to strict requirements and strict rules uh, laid down in the actual plans. The, the, the build quality is excellent on them. Uh, they're a good sea boat, very, very strong. I mean, she's made of steel, uh, a bit slow like setting a, a, a bus with wobbly wheels, really, but uh, good in a storm. And you originally sail out of? Oh, yeah, uh, England, Plymouth. Okay, Plymouth, is that on the south coast of England? Yeah, it is. It's the southwest coast. It's famous for Drake and, of course, the Mayflower uh, set sail from there, so it's got a, a big history. How long have you, you been boating? I started with my grandfather many, many years ago, back in the 60s. That's kind of giving my age away now. Uh, but I was just a, a little lad. Uh, he built a, a, a wooden 24-footer, uh, and we used to sail that around a place called the Isle of Man, which is in the Irish Sea. But I didn't really pick it up seriously until I bought a boat about five years ago, a big 36-foot racing boat. Tried to sail that by myself, but she was just too big. And I eventually ended up with the uh, White Shadow now, which is just perfect. But I, I didn't really get into uh, this sort of cruising thing until I set off about a year and a half ago. Because it's a, it's a big learning curve when you're out there. Yeah, it's not the sort of thing you can read every. You can't read about it all in a book. You know, you, you have to learn it when you get out there. Obviously, if you started out in Plymouth and you're in Curacao now, you've gone a quite a long way. Far when you left, or did it just kind of happen that way? I went down, I, I was down, uh, I went down the coast of Europe, Portugal, Spain, and so on. And then I went to the Canary Islands, which are in the Atlantic. And from there, you can get back to Europe. And you're out of the sort of uh, the winter in Europe. So it's a good place for people to stop. But then if you sail further than that, down to the Cape Verde Islands, which are African islands off the coast of Africa, uh, you can't get back because of the wind and the currents and the trade winds from there go straight across the Atlantic. So once you make the decision to leave the Canaries and sail to the Cape Verde, that's a decision to cross the Atlantic. And I, I had to think hard about it before I did it. It was a big thing to do, especially by yourself. But I did it, and uh, it's in the videos, of course, uh, down to Cape Verde, and then from there, uh, 21 days across the Atlantic. And now the next thing is, uh, do I go on? Do I do stay in the, the Caribbean? or? Shall I go to the Panama Canal? So that, that we're still uh, making decisions on that right now. 
All right, so you didn't set out and say, oh, I'm going to go to the Caribbean. You just kind of, you set out a year and a half ago and you said, I want to go cruising. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I had it in the back of my mind I'd like to cross to the Caribbean. But uh, so many people say things and then don't do it. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody for, for that uh, throughout my life, sort of saying, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. And your friends go, yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. So I didn't really tell anybody, but it was in the back of my mind. And it's only when I got to the Cape Verde, I, I kind of announced that I was going to do it. But yeah, there's a decision-making process going on all the time, like there is today, what to do next. So yeah, it was almost a last-minute decision, but not quite. Yeah, you know, I, I think that I've been following kind of several uh, folks who publicize their voyages, who have spent a lot of time in the Caribbean and, and seeing where they, they've they been going in the last couple of days. And it, it seems that, it, boy, it was such a great decision for those that uh, decided to go south to Granada or or places like ABCs. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing when you look at the weather charts, the difference uh, in the, the weather between the, those places and uh, other places like St. Martin and Antigua. Yeah, well, of course, we're seeing that right now, the horrendous damage that's been done in Barbuda and St. Martin and the, the other islands. Yeah, it's different down here. You can see because the ABCs are so close to South America, the wind tends to get deflected away and up uh, the Caribbean chain and on up to uh, Florida. So I'm, I made the right decision to come here. There's probably about another two or three hundred of the boats here with me. Ran Sailing are here, probably heard of their channel. Uh, they're ne my next door neighbors. But uh, I, at the moment, it's hellishly hot. I mean, it was 95 degrees Fahrenheit in the boat yesterday. Um, and the wind, there was no wind at all. With, with the, uh, the hurricane passing us, it sucked all the wind out. It was completely still here and so hot. I'm, I'm out, I'm out in the, uh, under the canopy now in the cockpit uh, talking to you because it's too hot in the boat. Well, that's, that's pretty unbearable to have 90-degree uh, weather and no wind on a boat. Yeah, I, I think we, we really did have a hot summer that was one of the things that kind of struck me when i got back from tahiti was just how warm it was uh when i got back to louisiana it feels like it's cooling off here uh but i think that that showed up in some of the storms that we're seeing yeah the, the well of course you're, you're north Burma. of me so you'll have a little bit of a season um but but here there's no seasons uh, the temperature doesn't vary much uh, between winter and summer, or as they say, the rainy season and the, the summer here. Right. But but just, but just that, yeah, the rain, you know it's winter when the rain's warmer or, or colder or one or the other. But um, yeah, but just that couple of degrees makes a difference here from being hot to being unbearably hot, which it is at the moment. Are you a big diver? Do you like to dive? Yeah, I've got scuba gear on, on the boat. Uh, I was a diving instructor uh, First time I was in the Caribbean many years ago in Roatan and Honduras, um, Belize and the Cayman Islands. Uh, and then I worked as a diving instructor in the Red Sea uh, in Egypt by on the Sinai Peninsula. Um, so I've got diving gear on the boat and I, 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 I think it's a great safety thing to have. I worked with the emergency services in England, uh, the lifeboat there in Plymouth for 10 years. And I saw many yachts get into trouble because they got stuff uh, happening under the waterline, they couldn't get to it, like a uh, rope round a prop, for example. But if you've got diving gear on board, you can get yourself out of trouble. And, and that really, when you're cruising by yourself, it's it's about taking care of yourself and getting yourself out of trouble, because a lot of times, places like this, is no one no one going to help you, you know? So, uh, yeah, and also, of course, the diving gear is great for recreational fun, especially as I was in Bonaire uh, a couple of months ago. That's good diving there. So... When, with your decision-making uh, to go to the Cape Verdes versus the Canaries, were you ever tempted to, to sail the Med, or did you want to go south? I was tempted. The Med uh, in the European winter is not a good place. People always think of the Med as sunny and nice, which it is, but uh, it can be pretty awful weather in the winter time there. And the other, the other thing of it was I, I'm not the youngest of people anymore. Time is not on my side, so I thought I'd do the difficult bits first. 
and uh, uh, when I when I'm near the old people's home type of uh, stage of life, then then I'll do the Mediterranean and I'll be uh, near hospitals and medical care if I need it. That's the kind of way I was looking at it. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a lot of people don't don't like to think like that. They, they think they'll live forever. So, <laughs> but I think a yeah. lot. I think a lot of cruises do end because of medical conditions. Yeah, you see a lot of boats for sale, uh, and they're all saying due to ill health, having to sell. Uh, there's a lot for some reason. I guess it's because it's a thing some people do later in life. Because for young people, it's difficult because you haven't got the money uh, to buy the boat, and of course to finance uh, the journey. Uh, we, where I'm looking at some huge costs on the boat coming up, because I'm going to need to refit and re-rig soon. I was thinking of maybe coming up to the States. I don't know yet to do that. But uh, nevertheless, the, the costs uh, are easier for someone who's worked a long time and have got savings. So I guess that's why you see a lot of older guys, a lot of couples uh, in retirement doing this. Why do you like to sail alone? Is that, uh, what, what's the appeal for that? Is it convenience? Is it that you want the challenge? What? What? Why do you focus on solo sailing? <laughs> I, I, it wasn't a conscious decision, really. I, I've always liked the um, solo sailors. I mean, my hero is Robin Knox Johnson, the guy, the first guy to sail uh, solo, uh, uh, nonstop around the world. Um, but I'm, I'm always open to somebody coming along with me. But there's always a personality. It's when you're confined in a small space with somebody, emotions can run high. I find just dealing with myself is enough. Plus, some people say I smell I'm an, and I'm a nasty person, so they don't want to come with me. But no, seriously, it's um, I might have somebody with me in the future. I don't know. It's, it's just turned out that way. Uh, have you had any crew since you left Plymouth or no? Uh, I sailed the first 22 miles with a friend of mine who was a mechanic and he came along because he lived along the coast. As it was a bit of a shakedown cruise as well, it was handy to have him on board in case anything broke. But that was the first 22 miles and I've done, I don't know, I've lost count now, five or six thousand since then. So, but no, I haven't, nobody at all. Oh, wow. That, that's, so it sounds like you're very confirmed solo sailor <laughs> yeah i i read somewhere that people talk to their self-steering gear because i don't have electric self-steering gear i have a, a hydro vein wind right. vein and uh, i did i started talking to it so <laughs> that must be a sign i'm a confirmed solo sailor so how's the hydro vein working out for you i've heard that that's the you can use that offset so it doesn't have to be in the center is it in the center for your boat uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I added a, um, a frame, uh, an arch to put solar panels on after I bought the boat and had to sort of configure everything around the hydrovane. But it is in the middle of the boat. And the great thing about them is it's, it's a self-contained unit. You strap it onto the, the back of the boat and it has a tiller. So it'll, it'll also act as an emergency tiller. If your tiller falls off the boat or gets damaged, uh, you can use the hydrovane. Um, it has a, a little few niggly things about it, but all in all, I'm, I'm very pleased. Do you have a backup self-steering gear, or is that it? Uh, it's called me. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, the boat, the boat will will sail uh, the old school way. Uh, you can you can balance the sails and everything, lock the helm off uh, using bungee cord, which I've done on tiller boats before. This has got a wheel, uh, wheel steering, but it does work. I tried it. I can set the boat up to sail herself. Oh, okay. Uh, so have you had instances where the autopilot failed on this boat? Yeah, going downwind. Or if there's not much wind and you're going downwind because obviously you can't sail faster than the wind, so you, you lose the apparent wind over the deck. Um, I'm kind of getting technical. I don't actually know what I'm talking about with that. But, but yeah, the, it won't work when you're going downwind in a little bit of wind. And also too much wind. Uh, it can overpower it from the back of the boat, uh, so I have I've had to spend hours on the helm in, in cases like that. But uh, it doesn't help, happen too often. So how do you manage your your long passages? You had a 21 day passage. How did how did you manage to get enough sleep? And uh, how did how did you uh, how did you do that? Well, yeah, you see, this is um, the problem. Uh, on a vessel, you're supposed to always maintain a lookout, which of course you can't do if you're solo. 
Um, I have an AIS, as most people do these days, which has made a big difference. Uh, uh, and being a steel boat, the only thing that can kill me is a bigger steel boat. Of course, they, they come up on AIS. But yeah, I, I sleep for 40 minutes, an hour and a half, depending on where I am. Uh, if I'm in a coastal area or a traffic separation scheme, uh, 15, 20 minutes snooze, and then I use timer, come on deck, check, and then go back down another 15, 20 minutes, and just keep doing that. Okay, so you just kind of take little cat naps. We yeah, had. Um... Yeah, yeah, I'm good with that. I it, I seem to manage to get away with not sleeping uh, for long periods if I can cat nap, but eventually it does catch up on you. You've got to be very careful. And you do have to take and uh, get yourself a few hours of sleep because there's a, there's a trade-off between um, keeping a good eye out uh, for traffic and being overtired. Because if you're overtired, that's when you make mistakes and things can happen. So there comes a point where you think, I, I have to sleep no matter what. Well, I think that was what former Vendee Globe sailor, world record holder Dee Kafari said when she was on the podcast back in episode nine that she every once in a while she needed a two hour or so sleep yeah yeah that, that's about right i mean uh, i and I, I try and make sure that when i have to sleep it's in a good place uh one time a uh, quick story i was off uh, the coast of portugal the weather was just there was no wind but huge swell running and i didn't want to run the engine i was in the middle of nowhere but near uh, a, a shipping channel, uh, uh, ships coming down. And I, I just motored into where all these Portuguese fishermen were fishing. And it was dark and just lights. And I, I turned everything off the boat, off the, on the boat and just put a bright light on the deck and went to bed. And they, they just thought I was another fishing boat and left me alone and everybody ran, went around me. So uh, there's things like that you can do. You say you have a big refit coming up. What, what do you think you need to do? The, uh, the rigging uh, is um, overdue, the stainless steel uh, standing rigging is overdue for change. It's original to the boat. Uh, the boat's only about 13 years old, 14 years old, and was sitting in a lagoon in Portugal for a long time and not being used. So there's very little wear and tear, but for safety reasons, I ought to change it if I'm going across the Pacific. And just the general wear and tear of everything on the boat uh, go through everything, make sure everything's okay, and I need to come out for anti-fouling. It's the first thing I need to do. And so you might take a break for a few months to, to get all that. Uh, well, I am now uh, because the videos run uh, behind real time, so uh, I'm a couple of months ahead on the video time. Uh, so I've been sitting here in the lagoon, uh, basically doing work on the boat, uh, doing very little filming because there's, there's not much happening at the moment. Uh, but I'm, I'm quickly catching up, actually, to real time. So uh, uh, another month and I'll be moving on and doing more filming. You, you're changing the rigging right now? Uh, not the rigging. No, I'm holding back on that. Uh, I'm looking for a cheaper option. Curacao is very, very expensive. Uh, I might go to Colombia or later on in the season, as I said, I might come up to the States where things are cheaper than they are in the Caribbean. So uh, that, it's all up in the air at the moment. I'm doing the simple stuff. I've just made a deal for uh, a lot of anti-fouling because that, for example, is three times the cost it is in Europe or the States. It's horrendously expensive here. Uh, we worked out, I worked out to lift my boat and put anti-foul on is $1,500. And it's all gone after six months. So uh, that's crazy. That seems reasonable. Not where I come from. Okay. That's too expensive. Are, are you doing all the work yourself? Oh, yeah. yeah You're doing absolutely. the painting and yeah. sanding? Yeah, everything. Uh, if there's any mechanical stuff to do or welding and things like that, obviously you have to get somebody else to do it. But uh, no, most of the stuff I can do myself, I've got tools, equipment, and spares on board. So it sounds like you're interested in the South Pacific, but maybe not. Maybe you'd like to spend some more time in the Caribbean for a while? Yeah. If I don't go through the canal this year, uh, looks like it could be Cuba, uh, Jamaica, um, as I said, possibly the States, and then down around through the Caribbean again and back to where I am now, Curacao or Colombia by next year, and then through the uh, Panama Canal. That's, that's one of the ideas, or uh, through the Panama Canal at some point later this year, and uh, maybe check out Costa, Costa Rica or the western side of uh, 
the American uh, the Americas down there. Um, um, I'm just kind of looking at options at the moment. What are some of your favorite places you've been so far? Beckway. I met a, uh, I worked for a, a guy, an American guy, he used to be a colonel in the army. Uh, he was running charters out of Egypt and he told me about Beckway being one of the nicest places he'd ever visited. And that was 20 years ago. So I finally got to go there a few months back and I, but that's coming up in the videos really soon, actually. Uh, I love the place, it's great. Kuriaku is another island, it's very nice. Grenada was okay, but uh, the, the, uh, the bays down there, some of the bays, Prickly Bay, and places where a lot of the cruisers go, I didn't think uh, were particularly sheltered. We had some rough times at anchor there, and uh, the coastline is full of rocks. But uh, yeah, a couple of nice places along the way. Uh, each, each little island you go to has something. Well, you know, one thing that I was told was that it's it's fairly complicated uh, sailing directions to cross the Atlantic. Uh, maybe you could talk to us about uh, what are the special things you need to do before you get to the Cape Verdes, where I think it's just a downwind run, you can uh, correct me on that, uh, that you need to do to get from England to across the Atlantic. Yeah, well, the, the hardest part really is coming down from England across the uh, English Channel, which is, I think, is is the busiest shipping lane in the world. Uh, that's that's kind of uh, gets your attention, and then coming down uh, Spain and Portugal, a lot of traffic there. Again, fishing boats and ships going in through the uh, Strait of Gibraltar into the Med. Once you get south of there, it becomes easier. And, but then you've got big long legs. But you can do the first part by almost uh, day sailing it from port to port down through France, Spain, Portugal. But once you get to uh, you leave Europe and get across to the uh, the Canaries, that's your first big one. That took me about eleven days in rough weather. So it's all about just being equipped for the bad things and hoping uh, that it's not going to happen. When I say bad thing, I'm just talking about bad weather making sure everything is secure on your boat and the, the, main, the maintenance is up to date, you have all the safety gear on board. But as, as far as sailing instructions, once you get to Cape Verdes, it's, it's all, the wind's all behind you because you've got the trade winds and the current. So you could even not put up your uh, sails or anything, you just drift across the Atlantic and you, you, you'd end up in the Caribbean at some point. Uh, I had rolling all the way. But uh, downwind sailing it is, if you've got a twin headsail set up, that's ideal. Uh, otherwise, um, there were times I didn't even have the mainsail up, I just had headsails. And you, you just go along, and I, this is a slow boat. Uh, some friends of mine did it much quicker than me. But it's not that complicated, it's just fear of the unknown. Once you get over that, just go for it. I, I'd say sailing around Europe is, uh, is more uh, demanding than uh, crossing the Atlantic. To get to the Canaries, what was your last port before the Canaries? <laughs> that was Portugal, the Algarve, uh, south of Portugal. Uh, originally, I bought the boat there in Alvor. Uh, I went back there just to catch up with some friends and to spend a couple of months because you, everything is, is time. You have to coordinate everything with the times of the seasons. So I had some time before it was good to go down from there to the uh, Canaries. And then I waited again in the Canaries. Uh, we had bad weather, and then on down to the uh, Azores, uh, uh, the uh, Cape Verde, sorry. A lot of it, you, you just got to wait for the right weather. And I, the same when I crossed the Atlantic, we, we waited a month before we could leave because there were bad conditions, uh, and then you go. Does anyone cross from the Canaries, or do they always go down, keep on heading south? Yeah, you can cross from the Canaries. You, you sort of go southwest, as I remember, without looking at the chart. But you're not immediately in the trades. Uh, the trades kick in uh, opposite uh, the, uh, the Cape Verdes. So you sail down toward the Cape Verde, but westing all the time until you actually get to the trades. Uh, it's a longer trip, and people would argue it's cheaper because every time you stop the boat somewhere, it costs you money. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying. And the other point is, uh, we almost touched on it earlier on, is when you leave the Canaries, uh, Europe or the Canaries, you need to have everything, and I'm talking mostly about food uh, and niceties, electronic bits and pieces you might want to have with you. 
if you want to order something off one of the, uh, the sites, uh, internet sites, and have it delivered, get it all done in the Canaries before you leave because the world is not the same outside. You, you, you're not in the, I won't say not in civilized world, that sounds a bit harsh, but it, you, you don't have all the facilities of a, a civilized uh, part of the world when you when you leave the Canaries and uh, food, even here in the Canaries, in the Caribbean, you can't get decent food in a lot of places. It's all very basic and very, very expensive. So stock up, you know, just till the boat's bursting. I reckon I had uh, half to three quarters of a ton of food on board when I left. It's all gone now and she's floating about four inches higher out of the water. So I'm surprised. So the Canaries you think are, are pretty civil. It's pretty good to get provisioning, good to get parts there. So Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, uh, they're, they're Spanish islands. I, I was on Tenerife and then La Gomera, which they're beautiful places. You can see that from the videos. But uh, getting um, provisions, yeah, some of the bigger islands, and Las Palmas and various, I mean, there's nothing you can't get, and you can certainly get stuff sent down there uh, from Europe. There's good connections with Europe. And uh, as I said, being Spanish, of course, for me as a European, I have uh, medical... Uh, I'm covered by the European Medical uh, Service there, uh, which I'm not here. <laughs> and so uh, that's another thing uh, which I need to sort of that is uh, medical insurance. What is the gear that you really like on your boat that you're glad you have? And what is some of the gear that you wish you have? I wish I had electric uh, self-steering for when I'm not using the hydrophane. That's a, a, a biggie. I'd like to have a SSB, which I don't have, and one of these, I think it's in-reach uh, satellite uh, communications uh, system uh, on board. The, the thing that I do like and that I have is um, I have a double sheet system on the boom, and uh, I keep going on about it in some of the videos, but I love it. It's, it's so good. Uh, the, I've taken away the track in the cockpit. I broke my toe on it in the first season, that's gone now, and I just use a double sheet system, so the boom is always locked in one place. Um, and that, that's one of the, the, the things I really love about uh, what I've done with the boat. And the other thing is having a safety line running down the center line of the boat. Uh, so those are the two main things. So they're both things that I've done rather than things you store-bought that anybody can do. So uh, do you clip in all the time when you're uh, sailing or not really? I should do, but I don't. The rules are never go out in the foredeck uh, without being clipped on while at sea, uh, or, or rather just leave, never leave the cockpit without being clipped on, and try not to go out at all uh, out of the cockpit at night time. Uh, sometimes you have to if something's going wrong. But once, if I'm in the cockpit in good weather, I'm not clipped on. Uh, I've got guard wires all around me, and uh, the frame on the back uh, acts as a sort of cage to keep me in. So it's pretty safe, but uh, if the weather does get gnarly, I do actually sleep on even in the cockpit and wear a, a life jacket. So do you normally, uh, when you go forward, do you normally wear a life jacket or do you normally wear a, just a harness? I got a life jacket because I've got a, a personal locator beacon in it, okay. uh, which which can, uh, like a mini EPUB, which some people would say if you're in the middle of the Atlantic is not much good, but if, if you've fallen off your boat and you're floating around, you'll grasp at any straws to or anything to keep you alive, and that the fact that you've got a, some kind of beacon on you that somebody might pick up is, is better than nothing. I have the same setup. It, looks, it seems like you're pretty much into tropical cruising, uh, even though you come from uh, cold England. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've been looking at Facebook and some of my friends, and the weather looks horrendous back in England this summer. We don't have summers much these days, it seems. But no, I, I was born in Africa, so it's in the blood, you see. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I just love to be in the warm places, and i got to have a tan, what can I say? What other types of things that you did you have to do to get your boat ready before you left England? Well, one was provisioning, one was putting the, uh, the arch on, and the solar panels, I guess. Because the, the way the guy originally built her, he built her for this trip, and he never did it. So everything was pretty much there. But the solar panels, the electric stuff had to be sorted out to give myself enough power uh, to run everything overnight with the plotter on, AIS and so forth. 
and navigational lights. So uh, doubling the size of the uh, the capacity on the, the solar panels was the main thing that I did. Uh, how many watts do you have? I knew you were going to ask that. Um, I can't, I'm not an electrical person. I've got a hundred, 250 watt and 280 watt panels. And on a good day, they'll give me about 27 amps. Well, I think it's impressive. You know how many amps they're giving you, so yeah. <laughs> you sound electrical I, I, to me. <laughs> yeah, I got a doohickey thing down there, down below that tells me uh, uh, what, I, what what what's coming into the boat. It's a it's a good way to track because uh, at the moment I've, my batteries are getting a bit down. That's another thing on the list. Thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. If you enjoyed this, uh, write a rating or a review on iTunes. Check out the YouTube channel. About everything goes wrong on my solo sail from Fatu Hiva to Hivoa. And that'll be out on Thursday, first Thursday in July. Until next time, my name's Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.